Welcome to the Hollywood in Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. The hit cast offers a weekly look at Hollywood from a conservative point of view. Sick of media bias infecting Hollywood headlines? Tired of stars insulting your views? Hit has your back. Now, here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to episode 40 of the Hollywood and Toto podcast. This week, we've got a double feature lineup for you. First up, my interview with Mindy Sterling, one of the comedy's most versatile performers. You know her from Austin Powers, but she's also up for not one, but two Emmys for her work on Con Man and Sex and Exes. We've also got an interview with Doug Nickel, the director of a new documentary, California Typewriter. Hitcast contributor and unofficial podcast mentor, Dave Minkus, conducted the chat, and it follows directly after my interview with Mindy Sterling. But before those chats, I want to talk a little bit about the simple act of going to the movies. We all know by now that the summer box office was a disaster. I think even James Cameron is talking about making a movie about it. But was it a blip? Will it be business as usual next year? Or is something more permanent going on? Now, it made me think about when I used to watch the movies the most. That was as a teenager. I couldn't scare up a date at the time. I was too young to go to a bar and drink. And I loved movies. So did my goofball friends. So we'd see a lot of films at the theater. I also didn't have Netflix, Snapchat, or a 65-inch TV to watch at home. Today's teens, they can have all of the above. They might even have a bigger screen. And that's just part of the problem today with movie going, because teens had all of that last year too, but the results weren't so catastrophic. You know, the culture changes really quickly in the 21st century. Must-see TV? <laughs> that's like a punchline. I'll watch the shows when I want to watch the shows, thank you. You know, we can consume content very differently than we did just five years ago, it's a real sea change, and I fear it's happening right now with the art of going to the movies, or more specifically, not going to the movies. For years, people predicted this was going to happen. Flat screen TVs, when they first came around, well, who needs the movie theater? You can watch a 40-inch TV at home and get something very similar. Well, that didn't kill the movie-going experience at all. And way back when, when TVs first came around and started kind of rolling off the assembly line, people said, oh, that's it. No more going to the movies. We can watch stuff at home. It's a very, it's, it, what's the purpose? We can just watch what we watch when we want to watch it and don't have to leave the comfort of our home. But of course, that's not what happened. People kept on going to the movies and they continue to this day. But I just think something's different now. Now, looking ahead to the fall, we've got some movies that are guaranteed to make a whole lot of coin. Justice League, It, The Last Jedi, Thor Ragnarok, they're all going to make a small fortune. It's, it's money in the bank. But what about the other films? Will they thrive? Suburbicon, Downsizing, other Oscar bait movies, are people going to line up to see them or are they going to kind of shrug their shoulders and say, hey, it doesn't look so bad, but I'll wait till it's on Netflix or cable or pay-per-view or anything else rather than going to the movies and paying top dollar to see it. There's another factor here, which we've talked upon briefly in past episodes. It's the conservative factor. Conservatives are really crazy angry at Hollywood right now, and I have to say I don't blame them. Hollywood stars are getting more and more political, more and more angry, and more and more aggressive against virtually half the country. That's going to impact the culture and also what people do and don't do when they go to the movies. Maybe they just stay home and say, I don't want to support actor X or actress Y. That's a real factor when it comes to the downturn in the box office. Is it huge? I don't think so. Is it significant? Quite possibly. And of course, you've got the usual suspects. 
Popcorn is crazy expensive. People are talking and texting and not really take, paying attention to the movie. They're taking you out of the experience. That just seems to be getting worse and worse. All those things together add up to the fact that we may be seeing something in our culture where people don't go to the movies like they used to. They will still go. People need to get a night out in the town. Teenagers still want to get out of the house and check out a movie with their friends. The date movie is still a thing. I get that, and I certainly support that as well. I love movies, and I watched a whole bunch of them growing up, and I wouldn't want to see that change for any new generation. But will they do it in the numbers like we've seen in the past? I don't know. For the first time since I started following Hollywood and watching it and checking out the trends, I'm suspicious. I think things could be changing. But listen, we shall see. No one's got a crystal ball, but I think there's a lot of signs where people should be worried about what's going to happen. Something's got to give when it comes to the culture, and I suspect it's already started. Dear friends in Christ, the Reverend Michael Spurlock. From the studio that brought you War Room and Miracles from Heaven comes All Saints. A new pastor's first assignment to close a struggling church. You're here to sell the church, thank you. The fact is, he had 12 people in that church today. Jesus had 12 people. He done all right, didn't he? Refugees searching to find a new home. What do you think will happen to them when we leave? Let's keep them in our prayers and ask for God's help. Aren't you God's help? From a seed of faith grows hope. I think God spoke to me. He wants us to save this little church by making the land into a farm. That voice you hear, be sure it's God's voice, not your own. Starring John Corbett. Back where we started. We are not where we started. We're somewhere completely new. All Saints. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. In theaters August 25th. For tickets and showtimes, go to allsaintsmovie.com. This week's hit tip of the week is Ben-Hur. The 2016 remake of the Charlton Heston classic got crushed at the box office last year. It was brutal. But let's be clear. Remaking an iconic movie, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, The new film is actually pretty engaging if you take it on its own very modest terms. The cast is rock solid, including Jack Houston as Judah Ben-Hur. And the signature chariot race, it's really good, excellently choreographed. Does it replace the original? No, even though it had the technology of the era. It was still amazing then and now. But this is a very watchable film. And also there's a nice spiritual uplift, which is not heavy-handed, which is woven delicately into the story that I think people of faith will really appreciate. Now, Ben-Hur just got added to the Amazon Prime streaming lineup, which is a great excuse to check it out. Put those expectations aside. It's not going to replace the original film, which itself was a remake, but it's well worth your time. I am Groot, and you are listening to my daddy's podcast. Before this week's HitCast double interview, I wanted to share a quick plug for Rage Against the PC Machine. It's my first ebook featuring stories from stars who refused to kowtow to the PC police. It's pretty refreshing, especially in these turbulent times where more and more artists are silent as attacks on free speech continue. You can find the book at Amazon.com, but I really hope you check it out for two reasons. One, I think it's a fun read. I think you'll enjoy checking it out, but also help support the HitCast and HollywoodandToto.com by picking up the ebook. I appreciate it. Now let's get to my chat with Minnie Sterling. The Groundlings alum had a list, has a list of credits way too long to repeat here, but highlights include her villainous turn in the Austin Powers franchise and a spell on Desperate Housewives. Her work on the Comic-Con web series Con Man earned her an Emmy nomination, but then so did her performance on the web series Sex and Hexes. 
She's funny, versatile, and she seems like the kind of actress who's very grateful for the fans who recognize her for all the different projects she has contributed to in, in recent years. Here's my chat with Mindy Sterling. Well, first of all, Mindy, congratulations on the two Emmy nominations. And I was, I was going to ask you, does that change the, the phone start ringing more? But you work so much so often on so many good products. Do you find that being that busy kind of keeps your, I guess you could say your comic muscle all warmed up? I mean, does it sort of help you stay in the game when you're going from different projects and just always having something on your plate? Well, um, you know, first of all, it is completely lovely to have um, – this ride with mm-hmm. two Emmy nominations in the same category. I'm beyond, like, I don't even know what to say. It just gives me, um, you know, it just, it, it just rewards me with the idea that people appreciate what I do, even mm-hmm. in a short form. And I'm very excited. Um, and the win would just be icing on the cake. The nominations are great. But, um, you know, I, when I'm busy, I complain. <laughs> when I'm not busy, I complain. So I think it's nature of, of an actor or a nature of yeah. Um And uh, so, yeah, right now I'm busy and I'm really enjoying this busy because I don't have to memorize any lines. I don't have to work on anything to get in front of a camera. I'm just, I love people and I love talking. So I'm just enjoying, you know, that part of it. Um and then when it's all done, you know, we'll see what happens. But I've been fortunate to, in the midst of all this, actually, to be doing, like, a couple of little projects and some films mm-hmm. and stuff. So, but nothing that I have to, like, you know, shut the door and I have to study for. So it's been great. It's just been yeah. great. You know, I think maybe 10 years or so, it said that you were appearing on a short-form video series. Like, oh, well, that's probably low budget. You've never heard of the actors involved. Mm-hmm. And now it's it's all the big names. I mean, it's, it's like there's been a revolution in content and, and, you know, you've been, you've been in the industry for a while now. Talk about that and how, how a short form show can be terrific and, 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 and interesting and, and attracts the best of the best. I mean, that's, that wasn't happening a while back. No. Well, I, you know what? I can remember when my agent was talking to me about, Oh, you know, I want to send you in on this thing. It's for the, you know, it's like a computer thing. It's on the computer, on the computer, on the computer. Well, as you can tell, I'm not very savvy on the computer. (laughs) And um, so I thought, oh my God, I don't want to watch anything on a computer. Why am I doing stuff for that? He's like, well, it's a new thing. New thing. And I was like, whatever. And now, because there's so much happening in the media, there's so many places to go and watch and be a part of that who knew who knew this was going to you know blow up like this so i am really grateful that there is this kind of stuff i do a lot of web stuff a lot of indie films a lot of low budget things mm-hmm. but i do them because cuz there's not a whole lot of money in them but the quality or the work um that is presented to me or the part that is presented to me or oh my god Who's do, who else is doing it? Oh, great actors. Mm-hmm. So that we're all now a part of it, just in a different, you know, place and a different type of um, programming or production. Yeah. But it's all good. Yeah, that's right. Well, talk a little bit about Con Man, because obviously you're no stranger to the Comic Con circuit, but geek culture, much like sort of the web series of today, 
I mean, it's a real revolution in, in where, well, when I was a little kid, if I had a comic book, I think I thought my, my friends might beat me up if I was a nerd. And now they, they might be not reading a comic book. What, what is your take on this? I mean, you're sort of really in, invested in it. You've seen it. You've got a show about it. What is it about this particular moment in time that, that geek culture is so powerful and so important? Well, um, you're right. I mean, we know so many nerds, and we would call them nerds. My son, I have a 22-year-old son who is a nerd, who is in his, you know, on the computer, and he knows this world, and he tells me things. I, <laughs> I mean, I would go to him and say, you know, if I was an animation show, hey, should I do this, should I do that? Oh, Mom, you're going to be big in that. He <laughs> helps me make those decisions of things that uh-huh. I don't know. And he, he already told me, Mom, you don't have a microphone. On his computer, so stop it. So things that I need help with. And um, I love doing the Comic-Con circuit. I love talking to people. I love seeing their faces light up when they get to meet the person that did the voice of or that did the show of or, oh, my God, you were in that kid's show, you know, on Nickelodeon. Wow, what a great a, a, a great way to meet your fans and your public and have them experience meeting you as a real person. I just think that's wonderful. Yeah. Obviously, your awesome powers role is is a real signature one. What what are the ones that people, you know, kind of mention to you when they meet you in person beyond beyond Frau? Um, Well, the young people and and the adults, don't get me wrong, I get them both. Uh They um, they know me from uh, Nickelodeon um, iCarly. And which, I mean, it was a series that was probably for three or four years. And I, I didn't, I wasn't a regular. I did, you know, maybe six of them. But mm. they're iconic with children. They remember. They grew up with it. And the thing is, they keep playing these things. Yeah. So I get a lot of, um, a lot of adults that grew up with that, and then the children that are now. Um, Austin Powers is, you know, pretty universal. That's <laughs> wonderful and lovely. And now I've, you know, crossed over to the um, voiceover world, animation. So when people know me from some of the things that I did, um, The Legend of Korra, I play Lynn Baifong, they are like, oh, my God, I didn't know you did that. Or <laughs> you find a, you find just another group of nerds that <laughs> are really into what you do. Yeah. I mean, that is a blessing. Yeah. Early in your career, you weren't as busy as you are now. It's just a natural progression of where a career goes. In those early years, did you were there sort of a work ethic you employed that really helped you move up the ladder? Was there, was there maybe advice you were given? Or even, I know your dad was in, in show business, Dick Sterling. Mm-hmm. Did he sort of maybe help kind of, kind of, you know, I guess grease the wheels of your career early on, or was it just, just all hard work and talent? Well, I think it was that, but he also told me, he said, um, everything that you do, just know is, um, it's, on, it's, it's good for your resume. It's good for your resume. Just keep mm-hmm. moving. Just keep, keep working. It's good for your resume. It's good for your resume. And, um, so, so you know, it's true, though. It's kind of like when you do things, it's like, you know, you may look at my resume and go, wow. I look at it and go, oh, what, I have one line there. I did that. You know, I mean, I uh, can detail it and think, I don't think that's that wow. But for people that are looking to cast you or for people that want to see your work or they go, oh, my God, I remember that, it really does all add up. Yeah. So, um, So I think it's, for me, it's just, you know, as things come along, um, you know, really don't don't turn it down. Don't question it. Just find out more about it and see if that excites you. Yeah. 
the Austin Powers film are obviously a beloved franchise now, but at the time, the first one wasn't a big hit. It was sort of a kind of a roll of the dice, a British spy genre yes. mock-up. I mean, yes. What was the moment that you realized it was catching on, that it was, wasn't just, <clears throat> excuse me, a, like a, a box office, you know, it didn't do as well, but there's, there's always a moment in pop culture where things catch fire. And I think from, I was kind of curious from your perspective, was there a moment where you realized that, hey, this, this is actually, this is really you know, getting a momentum here. This is really, people are really loving it in a way that maybe doesn't happen with most movies. Well, I think, you know, after the first one, when, of course, when I read the script, I was laughing out loud. I thought it was like one of the funniest things I'd ever read. And I was so excited about being a part of that. And then, you know, you're right. It did not get that recognition until it went to video. And then all of a sudden it popped. So I remember being in, I think I was in uh, Maui and with my family and getting a call. Hey, what are you doing in October or whatever? And I went, uh, what? And the idea that I was asked to come back and do it again. So then you knew. Yeah. You knew that yeah, yeah. we had something special because I knew it was special. I think we all knew it was special when we did it, but it hadn't reached that public yet. Yeah. So, yeah. When then we got to do that second one, we we knew this. Yeah, this isn't just um, you know uh, something that's going to go away. Yeah, one of the one of the projects you're obviously nominated for is Sex and Exes. Talk about the the show. It, you know, it's it's a different kind of show. It may not have mainstream appeal, but I think one of the great things about the content world today is that you can have an online show. You can have different formats and and ways to tell a story. Where maybe this wouldn't get on broadcast TV. But there's a home for exactly. all the same, and there's an audience for it. I mean, in, in a way, that's kind of freeing for. I mean, I know you work with the Groundlings, and you've got that sort of background as a as a content creator in a sense. But talk about a, a, that all the different areas that there are at this point for an artist like yourself to kind of express yourself. Well, that's that's the wonderful thing about it is, you know, more and more actors are doing their own projects because. Um, there's there's places to go with it. There's online. There's the web. There's YouTube. There's so many different places that you can go and and feature yourself or your work. So when these little when these little when these little um, companies come up and these production companies and stuff, they um, they have this 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 wonderful t- thing to offer you and and it's bringing in wonderful talent because there's so much wonderful talent. Around and not everybody is going to be on network. Mm-hmm. Not everything should be on network. I mean, look what cable television has done with this business. It's insane. I'm a huge fan of Netflix. I watch, I probably, I don't think anybody, I think barely anybody watches um, regular TV. You know what I mean? Network. Everybody's on a Hulu. Everybody's on a, a Netflix or an Amazon. There are amazing programs with amazing actors, and, and we're all given that opportunity to do things elsewhere that could not get on mainstream stuff. So, mm. <clears throat> I mean, you know, I'm probably the only one in Hollywood that is not writing something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not much of a writer. I'm more of a collaborator. But my point being is, that everybody is doing something or giving themselves that opportunity to and I think that's fabulous. Yeah. Well, given your background, the fact that you can kind of do improv and you can kind of create things on the fly and work with people, do you ever find yourself in a set where there are people like yourself and then there are people who just want, hey, I got the script, I'm going to read it, and I'm good from there. 
does that kind of cause tension sometimes, or is that sort of a way where you can kind of no, bring those people in? No, because, well, I think a lot of, I mean, yeah, I mean, some stuff you'll read, you'll go, oh, this isn't that funny. Um, but they'll also say to me, I'm, I'm incredibly blessed. They say, hey, you know, improvise that. You know, yeah. don't worry about it. Work around. And I just got a part in a little movie where I got to, you know, here's the script. Um, and here's your sides. Um, you know, I auditioned, but I got to play. And then off of my playing, then then the director went, great, can you do, add with this and do that? Then, then then they direct me. And, I mean, it's not that I'm writing it for them, but I'm making it funnier. Yeah. I'm making it a more um, in the moment. I'm helping and creating because I want the project to be good because I'm in it. <laughs> And also, they trust you at this point. They know you can bring something special and something. Absolutely. The scripted page. Yeah. Of all the people you've worked with, and maybe if this is like naming your children, you can't name your, your favorite. Is there a particular actor you just absolutely loved working with or connecting with, or you just that you know he or she? I've got chemistry with them, and boy, we could just go out on the road and, and hit a, hit the town and, and make people laugh. Well, I love I loved working with Alan Tudyk. I love he's he's incredibly gifted and um, I really enjoy working off of him. I mean, there are a lot of people. There are a lot of you know. Sometimes you just get into a project and you realize, wow, you are fun to really work with. But you know, I mean, I come from the improv world, so I've got my people that I've been working with forever. Tim Bagley, who has an amazing resume of things, and anytime that we have an opportunity to work together, we love doing that. Um, there's, I mean, from the ground lease, there's so, so, so many people. My, um, I have a friend, uh, Annie Sertich from the Groundlings, um, mm. that her and I have gotten together and we have written some projects together and are trying to do things with them. So it's, it's just a chemistry, you know, you yeah. find people and you go, oh my God, this is the best. And when I work and do improv at the Groundlings on Thursday nights, there is a group of people that we work with. A lot, and those are the people I see. You feel safe with. You know what to yeah. expect from them. They know what to expect from you, and it's magic. Hmm. Now, looking at all the roles you've done, I don't I mean I'm sure there. Are, I'm going to guess there are a couple at least, but you don't have a lot of dramatic roles in Rosemary. I was kind of curious: is this something you'd be interested in pursuing, and and what kind of roles do you think that might kind of take the shape of? Oh gosh, I'm always wanting to do something dramatic, something that lends itself to that. And I think that some of the things that I've done, there have been dramatic moments. It's, mm-hmm. I'm not featured as that. I'm hoping that, you know, that will happen, you know, um, that someone will give you that opportunity. Or like I said, how wonderful to uh, do a good dramedy where mm-hmm. you, you are, you've got your, you know, cause we all have a sense of humor, even when we're serious. So, and I do have that quirky side to me. So yes, I can be a, um, you know, someone in, in turmoil and also, yeah. you know, I can find a way to to have to you know add a little quirkiness to that as well. Gotcha. When you think about you know you're at the comic cons, you're meeting the public, people recognize you for all the work you've done. Is there a particular maybe an odd moment that you can share an uh, idiosyncratic exchange? Or I mean, I know people can be kind of funny sometimes, and maybe not even ha ha funny. But any any sort of moment you can share? Well, you know, when somebody comes up to me, I mean, I had. Oh my God! I've had people cry. Oh my goodness! I've had young, I've had young people cry, and like you know, their mother's like, "Oh my God, she's she's shaking. There's crying," <laughs> and you know, and you're like, "Oh my God!" I mean, think about that. I'm making someone cry, not yelling at them. 
So that's pretty cool. Um, you, I've had people like, you know, um, oh, if I meet them out in public, oh, my God, can you send my hand or my shirt? Um, I've had people come up and, you know, and say, um, what do you do? I mean, you look familiar. Who are you? What do you do? Um, what, what have you done? What would I see you in? And it, I drive you crazy and I'll just go, you know what? Mindy Sterling, look me up. I'm going to sit here and give you my whole resume. I don't know who I am. You know, give me a break. Um, give me, give me a I mean, people can be weird. Yeah, people can yeah. be weird. And, of course, then there's the people that hug you and, um, oh, and they, you know, their hygiene's a little off. <laughs> so I, I've that, learned you, to try to not be as, yeah, yeah. Uh, do you find that the exchanges are different now? I mean, I feel like in, in our social media age, and I, I think that people feel closer to stars at this point, maybe than they would 20 or 30 years ago, do you, has, has sort of the, the type of exchange changed at all for you, or is it sort of pretty similar? Well, uh, um, you know, I don't know, because I think as, you know, um, as when I start working a lot, and I start, uh. you, you have more and more stuff out there, then people see you and do, they see you in a lot of different things. So there is that attachment that they may have, or they just, they want to know about the story. Well, what happens when she does this? And I love that episode when you, and this is like voiceover stuff, I don't know what I did back then. I don't <laughs> <right>. remember. <laughs> and so you're feeling like, oh, okay, I don't know what I did. So, but, you know, they get really invested. Mm-hmm. Well, it's and, a complimentary uh, skills too, so. Well, it is. And, and, and if you don't think that I get that way when I watch stuff, uh-huh. I'm like, I get so invested. I mean, Bloodline, Netflix, I was very much invested in all those people's lives. I didn't want that thing to end. <laughs> gotcha. Well, actually, yeah. that kind of leads up to my last question, Mindy. Uh, one of the things we do with yeah. the Hollywood and Total podcast is we ask people, what are, their, what are they watching now? What are they checking out? What, what are they reading? What's on their night span? And, and you just mentioned Bloodline, which is a great show. Any other sort of shows you could recommend or books that you're checking out at this point that you can uh, share with them? Well, I, I hate to sound like I'm really just, you know, um, vapid, but I don't really read. Um, reading makes me tired. I mean, if I have to read something, I will. But um, a book and stuff, I just am not a great reader, so I've never really, like, if I do read something, though, I like um, autobiographies. So that that is something I would read. If I'm going on an airplane and have a long, you know, trip or uh-huh. something, I would do that. I'm mostly a TV person. That's how I relax. I like, um, like I said, I'm a huge Netflix person. I just finished watching um, the series uh, Ozark. Yeah, that's true. With Jason Bateman. And, yeah, it was wonderful. And so I, I, you know, I ask on, like, Facebook and, like, hey, what's everybody watching? And then I get the input from that, and uh, and then I'll start watching that stuff. All righty. Well, we will spread the word about Ozark and Bloodline T-shirts. I recommend as well. Mindy Sterling, yes. thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. Congratulations. You have double Emmy nominations for Sex and Exes and also Con Man. And uh, we will see you again in about a half dozen other projects before the year ends. I'm sure. So that's just the way you're feeling. Oh. <laughs> well, thank you. I really appreciate it. Have fun. You're listening to the Hollywood in Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. Now, here's part two of this week's interview doubleheader. Director Doug Nickel walked into a typewriter repair show a few years back. He had recently bought a typewriter and figured, hey, I need to know where I have to go to check this out, maybe get a fix or two down the road. These things do break down. 
He left intent on making a short video about the family behind this particular shop. And that became the subject for his new film, California Typewriter. The documentary explores in loving detail why people like Tom Hanks refuse to let this technology go. HitCast contributor Dave Minkus spoke with Doug about the film and how he brought it to the big screen. I hope you enjoy it. Well, it, it just kind of looking through your, your filmography and everything, it kind of seems like you're the rare filmmaker who gets to work on whatever you want. You know, as a result, you've kind of jumped around in genres, whether it's, you know, be seminal music videos and music films or short documentaries or short films and even doing like a feature length documentary now. What drew you to the subject matter in California Typewriter? Um, well, I, you know, a few, was about, I don't know, six, five or six years ago, um, I bought a typewriter on eBay just as a piece of art, you know, to stick in my office in the corner. I got it for like six bucks. And I had this old, it was an old Underwood. Um, and I, I put it there, you know, and it sat there in the corner of my office for about, I don't know, you know, a month or two. It didn't work, it was kind of rusted. And it, but it would kind of call me over to it in a certain way of like wanting to fix it up for some reason. Um, so I Googled and I, I found this one last typewriter shop in the Bay Area and took it over there and met this family, um, the Permillions, uh, Carmen and Herb and, and then Ken. And I just, immediately when I walked in the door, I, I love these guys, They're, I love their passion for typewriters and you know they were struggling to keep, and they believed that people were gonna return to typewriters, which mm-hmm. I thought was kind of a crazy dream. Um, so anyways, I, I decided to make a little short on their shop, about a three minute short, you know, to try to help them put it on YouTube and see if you know, it could help get them business. Totally. And then a friend showed it to Tom Hanks, and he really liked it. And he said, "Hey, I'll you know I'll do an interview for it." Um, and then the film just kind of grew from there. It's something that I I financed myself, shot, directed, edited, um, did pretty much the whole thing. Um, and it was a labor of love. So I just followed them, and I started meeting other people like Jeremy Mayer, and turned me on to Martin Howard. And then the film just kind of evolved. Um, and I worked on it, like I said, you know, between my commercial work and stuff. Cool. Uh, that, that actually kind of leads right into my next question. I mean, the, the film obviously centers around the shop, California Typewriter. So when you went into this, I mean, when you went into doing the grander thing, did you already have these other people lined up, or did it just kind of start no, no, off? The whole, the whole film came from the act of making it. You know, I didn't plan out any, anything ahead of time. So I didn't sit down and write a script or an outline or try to raise money like you normally do with any documentary. Um, I just started making it, you know. So I just, and it was the process of making it. Um, where I discovered things. So I, you know, I would shoot something and I'd meet somebody and a door would open and I'd go down that, through that doorway and, and it would lead me on to something else. And so the whole thing just evolved um, from the act of, you know, going out with my camera and shooting and meeting people. You know, and it took on a life of its own. And I found as, as a filmmaker, my job was really to kind of shepherd it into something that it wanted to be. But I really feel that the film kind of had a definite... Um, life of its own yeah it felt like kind of it was going to go in one direction and then people kind of started popping out of the woodwork and you're just kind of wrangling it to try to just give it some kind of focus wherever that focus may go yeah and I I like that it has it doesn't have you know it kind of moves in new directions all the time but it it keeps moving toward where I eventually wanted to go but I like the you know I was trying to create a feeling overall you know with the making of the movie I'd say you Um, you succeeded the feeling was the most important part for me you succeeded for sure. Um, I, I had a couple of questions about some of the, the actual filmmaking aspects of it. It's pretty common in a documentary. The first time you see so-and-so, you see their name and who they are. And was it a conscious choice to not do that? To not put their names on? Yeah. Yeah. I, I decided, you know, toward the, end of the, toward the end of the editing, 
um, you know, I took the film and I did one pass of it where I put all the lower thirds, you know, like mm-hmm. all the, you know, everybody's name and what they do and all that stuff and locations and here we are in Milwaukee or whatever. And for me, it just kind of cluttered the film and it didn't, you know, it didn't really add anything to it. Absolutely. Um, and I found it more interesting that everyone was just equal, that Tom Hanks was equal to, you know, a typewriter collector or whatever. They're just human beings telling stories. And I, and I, I wanted to keep it more cinematic, so I didn't want all that, uh, all those words on screen, which didn't, you know, I don't really think that adds to the, um, the enjoyment of watching it, you know. And if you want to know who people are at the end of the film, they're all listed there in alphabetical. Absolutely. No, and I love that choice. That's why I had to ask about it, because exactly what you said. It gave everyone, whether it is Tom Hanks or it's the poet who who does the little poems for people, every it it, it gave more weight, that is to say equal weight, to the people who aren't famous as those famous people. And it just kind of meant people talking about something that they loved, which I, I thought was a fantastic touch. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that's that was my intent. It's like I just wanted it to be human beings. Some are famous, some aren't. But everybody, you know, everybody has a passion for this machine. Absolutely. Well, the other thing that I absolutely loved about the film is that there's this there's this striking underlying theme of intentionality throughout that runs through, that throughout the course of the entire film and its importance of life and you know the importance of it being lost with how technologies come in um, without ever coming out and saying it. Was that kind of a a, a point of of the film or did it just kind of end up coming to a life of its own. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. For me, it was about creating a mood, you know, and it was, there's, you know, I walk around with feelings about about life and how things change and how things disappear, you know. Things are constantly disappearing, whether it's people dying or buildings getting torn down or technologies evolving or whatever, and that's great. I mean, I'm really excited about the future, but there's always a little bit of a bittersweet feeling about, um, you know, as things disappear. So... Yeah, that was the, I think, the underlying um, feeling I was going for, is just how, how things change and, um, you know, where we're going. And how some people embrace the future, you know, excited, like, like Jeremy Mayer, for instance, he destroys typewriters, turns them into his visions of where we're evolving to, you know, as humans, you know, eventually becoming, you know, with artificial intelligence and robotics, you know, becoming something else. And then, and then Martin Howard, who is is occupied with the past and and you know his feelings of it for his childhood and things so it's really a story about the past present and future each told through different people and you know the permillions they're just living in the present they're just trying to survive you know repairing typewriters yeah it's interesting you bring up jeremy mayer because what i i found so interesting about him every single person who's in this film has such an interesting and unique perspective but it even so much isn't even so much that he's destroying a typewriter it's that he's lovingly, carefully, respectfully dismantling the typewriter and bringing it to a new use. Like how he makes a point of saying, look, the typewriters I'm using just can't feasibly be brought back to life. And that's why I have no problem doing this and why no one else should. So I, I, I really love the fact that there were so many different perspectives. And that was the one that could have gone so badly, but it was so respectful. Kind of like almost how how Sam Shepard kind of referred to the typewriter almost like a, as a sacrament or, or an artifact of the church with how much respect he had for the, for that as an extension of himself and not just a tool. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I, that's what I found interesting is how many, is the different people and their different feelings for this machine and how they use it. You know, some people use it for art, some people use it to create. Um, but I mean, everybody's using it in a way to create, whether they're, you know, he's turning it into a sculpture or they're playing music on it or they're writing something. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, seeing John Mayer wanting to keep that as you know a, a 
a, a physical documentation, you know, a historical artifact of his creative process, I thought was really interesting as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, he—that's what he was saying in the film. Is he and he likes it because he can just get his thoughts out from his head onto a piece of paper in the most direct, fastest way without anything getting anything interrupting that that flow of ideas. Yeah, um, and, and how how difficult was it to kind of balance the love of this this bygone tool with or or you know not not considering it bygone, but kind of juxtaposing it with the current trend of technology. Um, well, that's what I try to do with, you know, I try to show like those scenes with the Apple store, for instance, mm-hmm. people all lined up in the rain, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people waiting for, to try to get in to get an iPad with the, the shop, you know, waiting for one customer to walk in their door. Or the scenes I shot at um, Consumer Electronics Show and Mac World, you know, where people are just, you know, going crazy with technology, wanting to, you know, little things they can add on to their body to whatever and, I, and, and you know juxtaposing that with people who are trying to stay human you know and trying to stay uh, connected um, in, in a normal way so yeah especially when you look at like at the very beginning just you know it's the film grabbing from the first five minutes so like when, when Tom Hanks is talking about how much more it means to him to have someone spend 70 seconds to pound out a, a, a thank you note on a typewriter as opposed to the seven it takes to send in an email it kind of gets back to it's it's an interesting once again just a position about talking about how current technology can kind of diminish the value of communication without being demeaning. That that that's a that's a heck of a balancing act, man. <laughs> yeah, it was hard. I mean, for me, the the editing was the hardest part of the film because I I shot most of it and then um and then I sat in the editing room like with all my scenes taped up on a wall and with index cards trying to figure out you know, how the whole puzzle goes together. Um, you know, what, and I, and I started finding connections between scenes and I would just, you know, sit there and it was like working on a big crossword puzzle and, and, um, helping it to, to flow together. So that was, that was, that was the hard part of making film. Fair enough. I'm, I'm curious what the reaction has been because it's easy to go in and say, hey, this movie's just going to talk about typewriters as a hipster tool or something. And then you end up having something that c- comes up, bringing up these deep, profound philosophical ideas. Have you been, ended up having these kind of conversations wherever the film's been screening? Yeah, I, you know, the, the hard part is getting people to see it because I think a lot of people, maybe they look and they see a movie called California Typewriter and they think, oh, this is just about a bunch of old typewriters and people talking talking heads, but it's not that at all. You know, it's a, um, you know, it's kind of a, like I said, it's a, it's a feeling about creativity and where we're moving. So, um, but once people actually get in the theater and watch it, then they, I've had really great responses to the film. Um, so, which has been great. You know, it's been great meeting people and seeing how touched they are by the film and what it means to them. Fantastic. Well, the film is going to be screening in Denver this week. Where does it go from there? Um, it's going to go into, uh, yes, yeah, Denver, and then it's um, there's a bunch of different uh, markets of the distribution companies putting it in, uh, back east and in the south and San Francisco and places like that. So, um, yeah, on the website, they're, they're putting all the different... Um, theaters up there so hopefully yeah it will grow and then in november sometime it's going to go on to itunes so people can watch it there fantastic and, and what website can people go to to find out more about the film oh to uh california typewriter movie.com fantastic i'm assuming if you just go to california typewriter.com you get the actual shop exactly <laughs> which is awesome which i'm trying to help i mean honestly my core the reason i made this movie was to help the family in their shop and um 
you know, if at the end people, because people watch the movie and then a lot of people want a typewriter afterwards. So if people can discover the shop and family and buy a typewriter from them and help keep them going, that, you know, then my original purpose has been fulfilled kind of in making it. Well, I'm, I'm kind of taking the idea of it. I'm starting it with this review, actually. I'm going to do the, the, the good old-fashioned vomit dump of a, of a review, and then instead of just changing it, keep that as a draft and then create new copies and new versions so I can look back and I'm going to actually look at, at doing that just as I do reviews going forward so I thank you on a personal level for making this film oh today. good thank you I mean that, that means means a lot that um, you know that you got something out of it in that way too it was fantastic yes so yeah I thank you so much for your time sir this has been a wonderful chat and it's a fantastic film everyone needs to see it ASAFP well thanks thanks so much for the support well, thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out HollywoodandToto.com for both the show notes and, of course, the latest entertainment news. Please follow me at Twitter at HollywoodandToto. And we'd love it if you leave a podcast review over at iTunes. See you next week. The Medicare annual election period deadline is coming soon. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who found the key to the right coverage at MyHealthPolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online. I took my time and found the best Medicare Advantage plan for me at MyHealthPolicy.com. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plan, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com. And finally, Michael. I prefer face-to-face, so I chose MyHealthPolicy.com and enrolled on the spot. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to learn about top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START. MyHealthPolicy.com. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call. The Medicare annual election period deadline is coming soon. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who found the key to the right coverage at MyHealthPolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online. I took my time and found the best Medicare Advantage plan for me at MyHealthPolicy.com. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plan, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com. And finally, Michael. I prefer face-to-face, so I chose MyHealthPolicy.com and enrolled on the spot. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to learn about top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START, MyHealthPolicy.com. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call.